Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We have been in this amazing, amazing gospel. And we have spent a good number of weeks studying John chapter 6. A very deep chapter, theologically rich chapter. And so we've been slowing down on some of these parts because I want to make sure that we understand what can be understood. As I prayed, there is serious mystery in what we're going to look at, even this morning. But there is also serious clarity. And I want to keep everything that we've been studying in tension the way that we need to. Last week, we finished looking at rejecting the Father's gift and the people that rejected the Father's gift of Jesus and and how to receive the Father's gift. And ultimately, the only way that we can receive the Father's gift is if the Father draws us. There's a lot of questions, and some people go to one side of the spectrum or the other, and they just say, well, if it's all up to God, then I don't need to do anything. No, there is tension in the Bible. We can't fall to one side or the other. And that needs to be explicitly stated right up front because there's more tension this morning. In fact, I think it's even greater tension. There's more of a need for, for tension in what's being said and Jesus himself is going to balance these statements by saying very, very clearly, no one can come to me unless the Father draws. You are hopeless without the Father drawing. But then in the exact same sentence, he's going to turn around and say, and anyone who believes can come. Anyone who believes, come to me. Believe in me, come. So we're going to have to keep the tension there the way that Jesus does. And as we read these, you will see these verses, just these truths pop out of these verses. We need to just ask God to give us clarity as we go through it. We're going to look at verses 41 through 51 today in John 6. 41 through 51. Let me read them. Let me ask God's blessing on our time this morning, and then we will dive in. John chapter 6, verse 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. So how does he say now that I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that everyone, anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Father, please grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to submit. I pray that your spirit would grant the gift of illumination so we would understand the words of our Savior. I pray that you would bring assurance. I pray that you would bring conviction. I pray that you would challenge hearts and minds. And ultimately, as we walk away from here, we would feast on the bread of life. That's what we want to do in these moments is feast 
So spread a table before us through your word as it is preached. May we feast on this bread of life. God, be glorified now. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. We pray in your name. Amen. Just for your outline this morning, just two sections we're going to look at. Sinful grumbling and sovereign grace. Sinful grumbling and sovereign grace. And I'll tell you right up front, the sinful grumbling part is just a couple verses. We're going to get to it really quickly and then move on to sovereign grace. So first, sinful grumbling, verse 41. Therefore, so because of what had just happened, namely that Jesus said, I've come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the Father has sent me. Um, I'm going to raise these believers up on the last day. I am the bread of life. You must come to me. All of these statements are not sitting too well with the Jews. So they're grumbling about him. They're grumbling about him because specifically it says... He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. So two things that he said, I am the bread and I came down out of heaven. So which are they more grumbling about? I believe they're more grumbling about I came down out of heaven. And it's specifically uh, because of what they say that I think that verse 42, they keep on saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. So then how does he say now I've come down out of heaven. How does he say he's been sent by God out of heaven? We, we know who his parents are. He was born to Mary. We, we know this. Sure, there's a, a scandal that some people are, are purporting in Judea and in Nazareth and in Galilee that uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, but we don't buy that. He was born out of wedlock. He was conceived out of wedlock, and he was born just like all of us are just a normal person. He was not sent out of heaven. So they take offense at this. They grumble. The, the Greek word for grumble is one of my favorite uh, Greek words. Um, it, it's, a, it's an onomatopoetic word. Uh, it, it's created to sound like what it's trying to describe. So the Greek word for grumbling is gugadzo. Um, it's, it's, you know, if you were to mum, mumble or mutter under your breath, you know, that's the sound. They're grumbling. They're, they're frustrated. They're, they're under their breath. They're kind of speaking to one another. And Jesus knows this. He knows that the more he reveals of himself, the more they're going to become angry at him. Why? Because the words that Jesus is speaking are colliding with what the crowds think that they see and therefore think that they know about Jesus. This does not fit our perception of who he is. He's a man and he claims to be God. Doesn't work. They're grumbling against that. And right now they're grumbling. But if you drop down to verse 52, they're going to argue. It says, then the Jews began to argue with one another. So they're grumbling now. Argue is a word for disputing. It's an escalating word. It's a stronger word. So this whole chapter is just escalating more and more. So they grumble. They don't like what Jesus is saying. And Jesus, being filled with grace, is going to answer them. And he's going to speak about sovereign grace. That's why I said, we're done with point number one. Very quick, they grumbled in their sin. But verse 43 begins point number two, sovereign grace, and he's going to answer them. This is so key. Verse 43, he answers them and he says, don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. 
So I, I want to, we're going to study these verses, but I, before we do, I want to just make the, the, ask the question. Jesus is answering these people's grumbling. And he answers by saying, you can't believe unless God draws you. And my question is, how is that an answer? Uh, my answer would have been, well, let me tell you about the virgin birth. Let me tell you about how I came down from heaven. Let me tell you about my father and the father's will. He says, let me tell you, let me, let me answer you. And the answer is, no one can come to me unless the Father draws. How is that an answer to the question? We're going to answer that question at the end of our time together. But he says, don't grumble. Stop your grumbling. Because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. We've seen that raise him up on the last day. And it's just going to be thrown in every single time. I'm going to save him, secure him, and get him to the finish line and raise him up on the last day. I'm not going to lose any of it. I'm not going to lose any of it. Now, here's where we need to slow down just a little bit. In verse 44. Verse 44 has, uh, for centuries, been taken to mean one of two things. It's been taken to mean one of two things. And I, I, I can understand where both sides are. I can see both sides. One way that you can take John 6, is to say it this way. No one can come to Jesus without God drawing. And God draws everyone, but only some come. So God draws everyone. God draws the whole world makes it possible for everyone to come, but only some come. So, in view number one, God's drawing is not the decisive reason for people coming. It just makes the coming possible. If you want to use a theological term, it would be called provenient grace. That God gives grace so that you can do the work to get to him. He draws everyone, but only a few come. That's option number one. Option number two is that no one can come to Jesus without God drawing. And everyone that God draws will come. So therefore, logically, since not everyone goes to heaven, then God only draws some. So number one, God draws everyone, but only a few come. Number two, God draws a few and all of them come. So... God's drawing in point number two, or possibility number two, God's drawing is the decisive act. One of these two is decisive. Either God's drawing secures you, or just makes possible for you to secure yourself by coming and believing. That's, that's the tension that we find ourselves in, in verse 44. That's a theological, doctrinal debate that's raged on for years. And I just want to answer the question, which is it? How are we to decide is God's drawing a universal drawing for the whole world, giving provenient grace to everyone, that comes, the grace that comes before you believe, it's given to all, and then humans are decisive in whether or not they will come? Or is God's drawing decisive by itself, and everyone that he draws will come? So let's look just inside of John. We can't spend all of our time here, but let's look just in John, four different passages to answer this question. Verse 37. Let's start there. We did this. Uh, we looked at this verse last week. So let's start there to answer this question. All that the father gives me 
will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So verse 37 is the positive. Uh, Verse 44 is the negative retelling of the positive in verse 37. Verse 37 says, everyone that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father gives them to me. So it's just a positive and a negative of the same exact thing. Drawing, giving, same, uh, same terminology, same action. And verse 37 says that all that the Father gives will come. So everyone that, that God the Father draws to give to Jesus will be drawn and given to Jesus. So if God's drawing is a universal drawing of everyone, then that means everyone would be saved. And that's not possible because Jesus is going to say it's not going to happen that way. Few are those who find the narrow road. Many are those who find the broad road that leads to destruction. So verse 37 would seem to say, I think pretty clearly, that this is a selective drawing because everyone that God draws is going to come. And since God doesn't draw everyone, since everyone's not saved, then God must only be drawing a few. Go to verse 64 in chapter 6. Verse 64, this is the second verse to answer this question. Jesus is speaking about the crowds and and about Judas. He says, there are some of you who don't believe, uh, because Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and he also knew who was going to betray him. So he knows these people don't believe. Now, if we were to ask Jesus, why don't they believe? Verse 65, he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. No one can come to me. And that's an answer to the question. He says, uh, there are some of you who don't believe. And the reason why you don't believe is because it hasn't been granted to you to believe. So you can't come to me. If the drawing in verse 44 was a universal drawing for everyone, that wouldn't explain Judas. Because Judas is not going to believe. And if he was drawn, um, and he was drawn by the Father, and the Father draws in verse 37 and gives everyone that he draws to the Son, then why did he not believe? Jesus says he didn't believe because he wasn't drawn. So Jesus is saying, because of Judas's unbelief, I'm going to let you know why he doesn't believe. So verse 44 seems to already with those two verses be saying, well, it's a, it's, it's a specific drawing. It's not universal. Last week we looked at chapter 8 and chapter 10. Chapter 8, you are not of God, therefore you don't hear my words. If you were of God, you would hear my words, but you're not of God, so you don't hear my words. So the decisive factor behind us hearing God and obeying him is being of him. Uh, and chapter 10, being his sheep being his sheep. Let's go to one other passage. This is one objection. And I just want to be fair to to the argument on the other side that says, no, his drawing's universal. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 32. This is the verse that people would go to to say, no, God draws everyone the exact same way, universally and the decisive element of salvation is whether or not you choose to come. 
This is the verse, verse 32, John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. I will draw everyone to myself, all men. Uh, Literally, it's all. I will draw all to myself. So it's clear, he's drawing all. The question is, what is the all a reference to? Um, You can either say that the drawing, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, that he's going to draw everyone universally in the same way, and the drawing is less decisive than your coming to him. Or, and we're going to get to this in more detail when we study it, um, you can look back, just go to chapter 11, verse 50, just one page back. This is the high priest, and he is um, prophesying. He doesn't even know that he's prophesying. He said, do you take into account, this is John chapter 11, verse 50, this is the nearest context for this idea of all. Do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish? Now, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. So we see nation, whole nation, nation. So Jewish people. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So I believe when you get to chapter 12, verse 32, when he says, I'm going to lift up, be lifted from the earth and I will draw all men to myself. I think you could in context say all men, meaning not just Jewish people. This is every single ethnic group, every single person uh, group, every single language, nation, tribe, tongue, like Revelation talks about. I think you could also say the all is a reference to all of my sheep. I'm going to draw all of my sheep. When I'm lifted up, that act will draw all of my sheep. I think you could say that. I, I think you can at least say this. The all is at least as textually warranted to be all the people of God, which is what I'm saying it is, as all people, period. Because there's no definitive statement. I think in context we would say that it's not Jews only, it's all people groups, and it's all of my sheep will come to me. So, back in chapter 6, go back to chapter 6. Jesus says, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he's going to say, Whoever believes, verse 47, He who believes has eternal life. So, There is clearly in this passage a universal love that God has for the world, John 3.16, a universal call that God gives to the world, and there is a specific love and a specific call. They're both happening in these verses. God desires all to come to him, and he draws only some. And that's the reality in the Bible. The call of God based on the verses that we looked at, and we didn't even go to the rest of the scriptures, but just in John, these verses, the call of God is decisive, not our coming and not our believing. By the way, this is huge. This is huge for assurance. Remember I said last week, um, God's calling of you is, is designed by God to grant assurance. This is where the assurance comes in. Because if... Your faith in God is the decisive element of your salvation. If God just draws universally everyone, hey, anyone can come to me, and God draws everybody, but your faith is the decisive element of your salvation, then if you lose your faith, if you doubt, if you struggle with faith, you're going to say, well, then I must not be saved. 
how many how many people have said to you just in the last year I don't know if I'm saved. I'm struggling with salvation. I'm struggling with whether I'm saved or not. And there's something good in that that you should encourage and press into. But you need to point them to this. Look, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and you love him and you cherish him and you believe that he is who he claimed to be and you're following him, that's only because the Father drew you. And the Father drawing you is the decisive element of your salvation. So your faith will wane and wax till God's kingdom comes. So don't place your assurance in how much faith you have. Place your assurance in the fact that you have faith at all, and that's only possible because God the Father drew you to himself. God's drawing is decisive, not your faith. God's drawing is decisive. So if God desires that all men be saved, but he draws only some, the logical next question is, well, isn't God unjust? This is exactly what Paul asks in Romans chapter 9. You can read it. This is exactly the question. Wait, God chose uh, Jacob, did not choose Esau. Paul uses even more specific language. Uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Before they even came out of the womb, they didn't do anything right or wrong. I just chose who I chose. So he asks the question, is there any injustice with God? His answer is may it never be, and there's two reasons why. God is God, he can do what he wants. And he's good, he's holy, and he calls and he chooses in a different way. And we talked about those uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, vessels of mercy prepared for glory. We talked about those before. Let's simplify it just here in John 6. There is no injustice with God in the way that he draws some and not all. Why? If you come to Jesus, the Father drew you, and if the Father drew you, he did so in spite of you. You didn't deserve it. So none of us deserves that, so he's just graciously drawing you. If you never come to God, if you do not obey the command to come, if you grumble, you push it away to the end, ultimately Jesus is saying the Father didn't draw you. But there's no injustice with that because that's what everyone deserves. That's what everyone deserves. Everyone deserves eternal wrath. So there's no injustice with God. That's why... People go to hell, and God doesn't go to hell. If God was the one who was responsible for somebody being in hell, the person in hell would say, God, you know I'm not supposed to be here. I don't deserve this at all. There isn't a single soul in hell who's saying, I don't deserve this. Every soul in hell says, this is absolutely just. This is absolutely what I deserve. So there's no injustice with God. There's no injustice with God. So John is going to say towards the end of his gospel, don't resist the Lord until the moment of your death and you die in your sins resisting God because then you will truly get what you deserve. So don't do that. Come to him now. Come to him now. The reference to the Father John in verse 44 is balanced in these verses by the exhortation for the people to come. Jesus says, You can't come unless God draws, but come, everyone, everyone, come, anyone. It's an offer to everyone. It is, they're equally balanced. They're equally true. They aren't equally decisive. I think we could say that. They're not equally decisive. And I believe this is where people go too far to one side or the other. And they go there because of what they believe is decisive. But we're in the middle. Sovereign grace Man's responsibility. You need to believe. God needs to draw. 
we're right in the middle. One is decisive, but we can't just move the pendulum over. A lot of people do that. They go, well, a lot of people in our camp, the way that, the way that I believe the Bible is teaching us this morning, a lot of people would say, well, since God's drawing is the decisive element, then who really needs to talk about man's responsibility? And they put everything on God's drawing, and they just don't even talk about man's responsibility to come to believe. And those verses are just kind of swept under the rug. Yeah, whatever. No, no. God's call is decisive, but there are commands to believe. We, were, we call people to repent, so keep it here. And likewise, people who would say that this draw is universal and that man's belief and man's faith is decisive sometimes tend to take the, the needle and pull it over to this side and say, well, we're just going to sweep the sovereignty passages under the rug. The sovereignty passages are clear and the human responsibility passages are clear. They're both there. So keep it in tension. They're, the only place where there is no tension is the decisive element. If you come to Jesus, it's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. It's because the father drew you. Um, so you need both. You need both. If God doesn't draw you, you can't come. If God draws you, you cannot choose not to believe. And if man does believe, it's because you have been drawn by God. So, I hope there's a little bit of clarity in there. There's questions, I'm sure, that are just buzzing around in your brains. That's good. Um, we're dealing, obviously, kind of with a Job 42 element here where Job says, I'm laying my hand on my lips. I have been looking into things that are far too wonderful for me. There is mystery here. But what can be known can be known. Um, so we speak to what can be known and we leave the mystery to God. So he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Now the question is, how does this work? And I love this. Verse 45. How does this work? How, how did the Father draw you? How does the Father draw people? How was I saved? When I got saved, how was I saved? Obviously, theologically, intellectually, I was drawn. How was I drawn? What does that look like? Well, Jesus is going to answer. It is written in the prophets, verse 45. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how are you drawn? Three things. You're taught of God, you hear, and you learn. You're taught of God, you hear, and you learn. Jesus quotes in verse 45, uh, Isaiah 54, verse 13, which he's in the synagogue right now. And the synagogue... Uh, you would take an Old Testament scroll, you'd open up, you'd read a passage of scripture, same way that we do, uh, where we read a little bit of Hebrews, and then the next week it's the next part of Hebrews, and the next week it's the next part of Hebrews until we finish the book and we get a new book. Um, in Judaism, they did that, they still do that in many of their uh, synagogues today, where you open up a scroll and you just read. It's the, it's the um, scripture reading and, and pastoral prayer, if you will, that we do. And they they don't just pray and choose their passages and their, their uh, books like we do. They have a calendar that they follow. And if we identify correctly the time of when Jesus is doing this, it's right around the time that Jesus would have been, or the, the synagogues would have been reading anywhere between Isaiah 49 to 60-something. So a lot of commentators say, 
that Jesus is giving this quotation of Isaiah 54 because that was what was read in the synagogue that day, which I think is uh, pretty good sovereignty on God's part. What is he saying? He's saying that Isaiah's verse, they shall all be taught of God, is how the drawing starts. You have to be taught of God. You have to hear. You have to learn from the Father. And if you learn and hear and are taught by God, you will come. I love how he says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets with an S. It doesn't say Isaiah. He says prophets, even though this is a quote from Isaiah. Why does he say plural prophets? Because he's referring to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and new covenant promises. The only way that we are going to be saved, God in the Old Testament describes a time when he will take out our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, will write his law on our heart so that we will know it, understand it, and live it out. He's going to do the teaching for us. That's what Jesus is saying. So that begs the question, when does the Father teach? How do we get the Father to teach? How do we hear the Father teach? Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father. Well, we're in trouble. (laughs) If we're going to be saved only because the Father is going to teach us and we're going to hear the Father speak to us and learn from him and no one can see him or be close to him or be around him, we're in trouble. There are some people that say verse 46 is a parenthesis that John put in there. I don't think it is. I think it's Jesus continuing because what he's going to say is, and it's not the Father who's doing this explicitly to you himself. He's doing it through the Son Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. I just said, I am from God. I was sent from heaven. That's me. I'm explaining the Father to you. This is John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen the Father. The one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. uh, Literally in the Greek, exegeted him. He has given us an understanding of the Father. We cannot know the Father apart from the Son. That's why the Trinity is so crucial. We cannot know the Father except through the Son, and we cannot be saved if we don't know the Father. So we must have both. This is so crucial for us. He's giving us the process. The Father sends the Son. This is how salvation happens. The Father sends the Son, who is embodiment of the perfect teaching of the Father, the whole curriculum of God standing right in front of you. And if you go to that school where Jesus is your schoolmaster telling you who the Father is, uh, there's no dropouts from that school. Everyone who goes to that school graduates with honors. So the Father says, I'm going to send my Son, and He's going to teach, and He's going to move through the Spirit in the hearts and the minds of those that are being taught. He's going to write the instruction of God on their hearts. So again, we need the Trinity. The Spirit's doing the work to inform your mind, to inform your heart, to change your will. As they have internalized that revelation, things start to click. Eyes open, veils are pulled back, the cross becomes wisdom and no longer foolishness. That's how all who are taught by God through Jesus are saved. How does he do it? Is it an audible voice? Uh, No. Um, It's through his word. And Jesus is the word, John 1, 1. He is the word, and this is his written word. So this is where God teaches. This is crucial for us um, because verse 46 says, 
the only way that we can get the Father's teaching and hear of him and learn from him is if the Son explains him. We've already seen one reason why people don't believe, and it's sin. They love the darkness. They hate the light. They love the praises of man. We've already seen that. But we can give a second reason why people don't believe. A second reason why people don't believe in, in, in the Father and come to him is because they're taught the wrong Jesus. They're taught the wrong Jesus. Verse 46, if Jesus is the only one that has seen the Father and can explain the Father, John 1.18, then we're in trouble if we're preaching a wrong Jesus because then we are preaching a wrong Father. This is why when you discuss the Word of God with cults, you need to go to the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're teaching Jesus. They absolutely are. Just a wrong Jesus. And a wrong Jesus explains a wrong father, and a wrong father cannot teach you and call you and draw you in a saving way. So, Jesus himself is the mediator of this knowledge. He is the one who is narrating and exegeting God to us. So how God, God teaches, the Father teaches, we hear, we learn, through the Son, and we're drawn. What do we do? Do we do anything in that? Do we just sit and wait for God to teach us? No, we do what we're doing right now. We come, we gather, we hear the word of God, we read the word of God, we study. But can I, can I just say there's one step before that? And I want to show you the one step before that. It's in chapter 7. Turn to chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. What is our part? Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. What's our part? Chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. Jesus answers and says, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. And here's the key. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. So God's going to teach us, and we need to sit under his teaching, But the human responsibility element here is to be willing, to be willing, to be broken, to not be stiff-necked or hard-hearted. If your heart, I think that this verse is saying, if your heart is insubordinate, then there are things that you will not be able to understand. There are things you will not be able to understand because it says if anyone's willing to do his will, then he will know of the teaching. So studying the Bible is not the first key. Yielding your will, humility is the first key. You start there, then you study, and as God teaches, you hear, and as you learn, you are drawn. That's the process. So back in chapter 6, verse 44, we're seeing sovereign grace. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. What does the drawing look like, Jesus? Well, God the Father teaches through Jesus. You hear as you are willing and submit yourself under that. You hear, you learn from the Father, and you come. No one can see the Father except for the Son. The Son. I am from God, so I've been sent. I've come from heaven. I've been sent to teach you, to show you. So we have to preach the true Jesus. That's the process of sovereign grace as it's being moved through. Then we get to verse 47, and Jesus yet again balances out these statements. Truly, truly, I say to you, he, literally, whoever believes, 
has eternal life. If you believe, you'll have eternal life. So you need the Father to draw you, but I'm still going to give the call to everyone. The call goes out to everyone. Believe, believe, believe. And here in verse 47, he's not saying will have eternal life. He said that three times. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. And now he says he has eternal life in the here and now. Eternal life is not as much quantity of time of life as it is quality. Because the reality is unbelievers live for eternity as well. They just live for eternity in hell. So it's not a matter of time. And that's why Jesus says, if you come to me today, your quality of life will change. Not health, wealth, and prosperity quality of life. But now you have a right relationship with the God of the universe and he securely holds you in his hand and you have nothing to fear. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, if you want to believe, come. And you will have eternal life now. You will have eternal life now. He's going to move on in verse 48 to say, I'm the bread of life. We're going to keep talking about bread. (laughs) We're going back to bread until we get out of chapter 6. We're just bread, bread, bread. So I want to stop and I want to answer the question that we asked at the beginning. How is sovereign grace an answer to sinful grumbling? How does it answer sinful grumbling? They're grumbling. I I don't get you, Jesus. And, And my perception of what's happening here, this doesn't fit. I don't agree with this. And you sinfully grumble. And Jesus answers and says, don't worry, don't grumble because no one can come to the Father unless you're drawn. How does that answer their grumbling? This is the way I would put it. Jesus is saying, you are confused, you are perplexed. There's an aspect where you're seeking to find answers here, but you are never going to get the answers if you go about it the way you're going about it. They're seeking to find answers based on their human reasoning, right? They're saying, wait, this doesn't match, and you have two parents, Mary and Joseph, you can't be sent by... They're, they're not yielding their will, like John chapter 17, or 7 says. They're not yielding. And so they're saying, we don't understand this, and we can't figure it out on our, on our own reasoning. And Jesus says, you're never going to be able to. You can't come to me on your own reasoning. You can't get to me on your own. The Father needs to draw you. Likewise, you can't understand these things on your own. That's what Jesus says to Peter, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Peter, who do you say that I am? Well, I say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, that's good. You're right. And guess what? Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. My Father gave you that information. You weren't taught that. My Father taught you that. So he's saying to this crowd, guys, you're going about it the wrong way. If you try to to figure all these things out through your human intellect and reason, you're never going to get there. If you would yield yourself right now and say, God, help. What's the the implication of only the, the ones that the Father draws can get to Jesus? The implication right away is, God, please draw me. Please, I, I yield myself, draw me. I, I'm ready. And this crowd's saying, uh, we don't think we can get to you on our own. So Jesus' answer is an answer to say, God is the one that needs to draw you. You can't get there yourself. God is the one who's going to give you the information, the knowledge, and the wisdom. You can't get there yourself. That's why we sing songs that we sing that have words like, He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with his cords of love and he tightly bound me to him. He's the one who did that. So therefore, we must humble ourselves. We must stop trusting in our own reason. We must come to Jesus in utter humility. He's already proclaimed that he's never going to cast us out. And if he never casts us out, 
And we can come to him saying, please take me, please, as you yield yourself to him, please love me, please draw me. There is something amazing about sinful grumbling that is meant to be undone by sovereign grace. There's something about sinful grumbling that's meant to be undone by sovereign grace. Which I think is just the irony of ironies, because whenever you talk about sovereign grace, you get sinful grumbling. But I think it's because human reasoning is trying to figure out the mind of God. When there's mystery here, there's mystery here. Our presumptions that we understand, we figured out, we understand these things, we're just proclaiming to be omnipotent, omniscient, we know it. And what Jesus is saying is going to shake you to your core and say, you know nothing. You know nothing. Your will is impotent. You are completely unable. We think we're hot stuff, and Jesus is saying, you're not. You're blind, you're dead, you're hopeless without sovereign grace. So I would say, just at the end of these verses, wake up. And don't ever be self-sufficient. Become good at being a self-doubter and yielding your will to the Father and saying, God, you teach me. God, you teach me. So, verse 48, back to bread. I am the bread of life. He said that already. He says it again. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died So he's going back to the wilderness, the manna issue, which is very interesting. And I think it's so appropriate because they're grumbling. What did the Israelites do in the wilderness that made the earth open up and swallow them whole? They grumbled. So he's saying, you're grumbling uh, and you got manna that you didn't like. Uh, Your fathers died in the wilderness and they died for a number of different reasons. But I'm here to offer you satisfaction so that, number one, you won't grumble. And number two, you won't die. I've come to do that. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Look, your fathers ate, but they are dead. I'm, I'm offering you something that will give you eternal life forever. And I love how he says in verse 49, your fathers. Technically, they're his fathers too, right? He's a Jew, and yet he's distancing himself from them. He's saying, no, 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 you're, you're holding all of your tradition in what your fathers have done. And they died. They died. So, verse 51, I am the, li- the living bread. I am the, the bread of life. You come to me. Anyone who comes to me will be able to live forever if they eat. That's what he says, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, anyone, anyone who eats, universal call, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So it's for the world, and I am giving it. Universal call. The way that he's going to give himself as bread for us to eat is he's going to die. And it's going to be for the life of the world. It's his flesh. That starts a new section that we're going to get into next week. But he he ends by saying everyone, all, anyone who wants to come. It's universal. Yes, there's sovereign grace and there's a universal call. And they aren't at odds. We talked about it compatibilism last week they are not incompatible they might completely be incompatible in our minds but our minds are not god's minds john emphasizes throughout this whole book the responsibility of people to come to jesus and he can tell them that if they do not come they will be judged because they failed to come 
So they're not at odds in John's mind. They're not at odds in Jesus' mind. They work together. So, sinful grumbling, sovereign grace. There's a lot here, and I know that much of it is theologically and doctrinally heavy and weighty and confusing. So let's pull back. I want to end with three points of conclusion of implication. What do we do with all this? You read this for your daily devotions. What do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? What's the implication? Implication number one. Whenever we talk about God's love for specific people, for particular work, a call for specific people, we must never neglect the larger scope of God's universal call to the whole world. Whenever we focus on, and rightfully so, when the Bible says God draws some, don't neglect God's call universally and God's love universally for the world. Using just John, just John, there is a universal call and a universal command that is made possible through a particular work, through a specific work. And I want to show you that. There's, I think I have like 13 verses here. I'm just going to read them. John 2, verse 19. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 4, 42. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. He's available to everyone. John 6, 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's, it's, it's available to all. And it's universal to all. It's a call to everyone. John 3.15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.24, whoever hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. John 6.35, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.37, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6:47 Whoever believes has eternal life. John 6:58 Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John 7:38 Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And, and John 12:46 uh, Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Whoever anyone all. So implication number 1 when Jesus says specifically only that the, those that the Father draws will come to me, and then he says a balanced statement, if you will, of anyone can come, come, anyone, anyone. Then we should, must, we need to lavishly proclaim and offer the gospel to everyone everywhere. I, I think I've told you uh, the example of my buddy that I had in seminary who we were sharing the gospel with some people, and, and I said, God loves you, God died for you, God died to, to save you from your sins. And as we walked away, he said, you can never say that. He said, well, Jesus did, and I don't know why I can't say that. He said, because you don't know if, if, if God drew that man. You don't know. And I just said, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. God draws specific people, and Jesus proclaims anyone who comes can come. Come. Paul says anyone. Peter says anyone. Come, come, come. So we must not let the pendulum, even though we know what's decisive, We must not let that pendulum swing to just say, well, not really. No, don't do that. Don't play that game. That's a game. That's a game where finite minds try to figure out an infinite mind, and it never works out well. You can never win at that game. So we must and should lavishly proclaim the gospel to everyone, everywhere. It is God's business to save sinners. It's our business to lift them up and proclaim to everyone. Whosoever will come may come, come now. 
Our job is to fill this city with this message, to fill our neighborhoods with this message, to exalt Christ in our workplaces. That is our job. So that's implication number one. Don't neglect, even when we see sovereign grace, don't neglect the call, the universal call to everyone to come. Implication number two, as we stare at sovereign grace, if we are saved, what's the appropriate response to sovereign grace? What's the appropriate response to sovereign grace? Number one, humility. Humility. Everything that I do, I do because God has given me grace. If I do anything good in this life, it's because of grace. God does it all. Um, I would be arrogant to think otherwise. This is one of the reasons why James 4 says uh, we're arrogant if we think we know what we're going to do tomorrow. Um, If the Lord wills. Why? Because it's God who's giving us the grace to do these things. So we must be humble. Number two, we must be thankful. Everything that we have, we owe to the Father drawing, the Son purchasing, and the Spirit birthing. What did we do to contribute to our physical birth? Nothing. And that's why Jesus says, you must be born again. It's an analogy. It's an analogy to say, you did nothing to be physically born. You do nothing to be spiritually born. So what do we do? John chapter 7, you can ask. Be willing. Be humble. Humble yourself. Yield your spirit. But if you have come to Jesus, be thankful. Be supremely thankful that he saved you. There's no reason that he should save you for you and you alone. Yes, you have the image of God. We all have the image of God. So what set you apart is different. Nothing. Nothing. We're sinners deserving God's wrath. Be thankful. Number three, be assured. Be assured. If he drew you this omnipotently, and his calling is the decisive element of your salvation, then when you doubt... Rest in his call. When your faith is weak, rest in his call. When you struggle with sin, rest in his call. Go back. He will keep you omnipotently because he drew you omnipotently. And he drew you decisively, so he'll keep you decisively. And he drew you apart from you doing anything, so he's going to keep you apart from you doing anything. Why do you think, do you think, and if you do, why, that you're going to wake up tomorrow a Christian. You're going to go to, bed, go to bed tonight loving Jesus, treasuring Jesus, cherishing him, faith in him. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning. Why are you still going to be doing that? It's because the Father holds you. It's because he holds you. He drew you, he holds you, and he's never going to let you go. Never. Be assured. Number four, this gives us hope. This is all under our response to sovereign grace. This gives us hope, the conversion of the person that you love the most, who looks most impossible to save. Well, guess what? It's impossible for them to be saved if faith is the decisive element. If human reasoning and human ability to come to Jesus is the decisive element of their salvation, then give up hope. But since the decisive element is God drawing, you have hope everlasting. You have hope As long as they're alive, you have hope. Just think of Saul. Saul who became Paul. No one would have said, I have hope that he'll choose Jesus. I have hope one day that he will, as he's persecuting Christians, as he hates Christians, as his job is to try and destroy Christianity from the face of the earth. Nobody's looking going, you know what, I think that 
I think one day he'll change his mind and his human reasoning will get him to a place where he's going to love Jesus. And nobody would say that about his faith. How did he get saved? Jesus said, I'm drawing you. Blinding light, listen to me. I'm going to teach you. You're going to hear. You're going to learn. And you're going to go. Um, That's what's decisive in salvation. He goes, yep, I'm going. And because that's what's decisive, I can promise you that you have hope. For anyone in your life that you look and you go, oh, I think that they're beyond salvation. They are if human reasoning and human will was the determining factor. Lastly, all glory goes to God. All glory goes to God. Since God does it, since our hope is in God being sovereign, all glory goes to God. That, that's the point of sovereign grace. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. That's, I, that's, I mean, that's the Bible. All glory goes to God. I just want to say, before we go to number three, with the doctrine of sovereign grace, I believe that it's in the Bible. I don't think you can get around words like calling, election, predestination. I believe we need to hold it in tension, and I want to do that well. Um, And I just want to say, I don't know where all of you are at with your understanding of this. Um, Some people have left uh, our church because I believe the Bible preaches this and says this. This can be a very harsh, stinging, if you hear this, and I don't know where you're at. And this is is what I want to say. I'm not in a hurry. (laughs) I'm not in a hurry for you to understand this. I don't fully understand it. I'm just preaching what I believe is clear in Scripture. And I'm not in a hurry for anybody to get this. God's not in a hurry for us to get this. Also, I want to remind you, if you believe or don't believe sovereign grace, that does not depend on whether or not you're saved. That's why we hold this. It's a precious doctrine. It's a biblical one. But we hold it loosely because I will absolutely hold hands and minister with brothers and sisters who completely disagree with me on this issue. Why? Because I know they're saved. It's not a determining factor in whether or not you believe. It's not you have to believe Jesus died for you, you're a sinner, and that he's the one that drew you. No. Nobody, I don't think anybody who gets saved gets saved believing that, understanding that doctrine. You figure that out as you go along. So please, no judgment. There's no judgment here. There's no condemnation here with me towards you. If you're struggling with this truth, fine by me. Take all the time you want. I'd love to wrestle through these things with you. I've wrestled a little bit with these things on my own to get to the place where I am. I'd love to do that with you. But there's no hurry. No hurry whatsoever. So please, even when we talk about doctrines that are very, very challenging, no judgment, no condemnation. We'll take our time. All right, last reason, or last point of conclusion here. Bread. Jesus turned to bread. We've got to finish with bread. Bread is such a great analogy. We depend on food every day. We need to depend on Christ every day. We depend on food for strength. We need to depend on Jesus for spiritual strength. Jim Boyce says it this way, and I just think this is perfect. Is Jesus as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? He is as much a part, is he as much a part of your, of you as that which you eat? Is he as much a part of your world as what you eat? Then he says this, do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. 
I say this because although he's obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for so many people, he is so much less. Is he real to you? Is, he, is, is Jesus as real to you as a piece of bread? Is he indispensable to you? Is he everything you need? Is he, Psalm 23, you are my shepherd, I shall not want. Because I have you, I have all I need. Is that Jesus to you? The first commandment that God gives in Exodus 20, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. John 6 is the opposite of that. It's the positive. Exodus 20, have no other gods before me. John 6, have me. I'm here for you. Thou shalt have me. Thou shalt partake of me. Thou shalt feast on me. So as Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is meaning for us to come and to feast on him. And again, he's going to say hard words. We'll look at next week. As he says these hard words, he's saying them to us to say, feast on me as all you need. Feast on me today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that because of him explaining the Father, we are drawn and we can come. And I pray that you would do that even now. As we sing and we have heard and learned of Jesus and learned of the Father and as we sing songs about Jesus and his love, I pray that you would draw, draw people to yourself. Um, And as we sing about sovereign grace, I pray that you would be pleased to be exalted as the decisive element in our salvation. May we rest in assurance because of all that you've done and all that you promised to be for us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.